Welcome to Cocktails at Table 7. I'm Dana Mirlock here with... I'm Sean Kent. I'm Jason Woodruff. Um, we have our episode today is with John Glover, who is a longtime Joe Allen regular. But before we go into the interview, um, we've had a, a, a rough week here at Cocktails at Table 7. Um, as most of you probably know, the man who created all of this, uh, Joe Allen, passed away on February 7th. And we we thought about not posting a show today, and then we decided that that wasn't the right answer. And that this is a man who has uh, 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 done so much for so many people just through the through the businesses he created, but it created such fellowship and such love and such support. But the one thing that it wasn't about was self-indulgence and, and, and moping around when, when bad stuff happens. And so what we're doing is we're going to just keep going through and sharing the stories from the regulars and sharing our perspective and celebrating the man. So what was an interview show is now a tribute to a man that unfortunately is not with us any longer, who we have great love for and great affection. And who would be very annoyed if we all moped around and didn't do anything <laughs> yes. and made a big deal about him dying. He would think that was ridiculous. Put your interview up. Come on. He absolutely <laughs> would. And and who better than a longtime regular, John Glover, who was there when it all started and saw the beginnings and was watching and feeling and being part of the community being created. Yeah. I mean, John's been acting for 50 years. He's got like 130 credits. He's done 19 Broadway shows. Everyone he's been, he's, he's completely, you know, beloved character actor. And when we were listening to him telling stories about like his first week rehearsing on Broadway, I was thinking this is like the perfect, this is why we're doing this podcast is so that someone can talk to us about this. And the fact that it came so soon, soon to this moment um, is kind of wonderful. So I'm really excited, actually, that we do get to share the, the memories of someone with a long, long association with the restaurant and who's seen it through all its phases and still says, you know, he goes in and it feels like he, he feels the energy of the man to this day. So, well, not to this day. We've been closed a while. Everyone knows that. But you know what I mean. <laughs> they, I think they get the gist. Yeah. Um. <laughs> but we're all, you know, you're not, no one, we're all feeling it. We're feeling the loss. We're feeling it and, and we're all thankful for what he created. And we are going to continue being part of that community and sharing that feeling and what has been created. And, uh, but we want to, we want to make sure we, as he would say, Sean. Get it right. Get it right. We just have to make sure we get it right. That was probably the most frequently repeated piece of advice that I ever got as a manager from him and that we ever heard at any meetings. And I totally think that it's true. And since he would not like us going on and on and on about him in this way, we will now share with you our really wonderful interview with John Glover. Cheers to you, Joe. Enough witty banter. We we wanted to thank you so much for joining us. It's it's a pleasure to see you. Yeah. What where, where so where are you and what are you doing right now? Yeah. I'm in Austin, Texas. I am working. I am a working actor. I got this job uh, before the lockdown came. So when the lockdown came, I just stopped shaving. All the hair everywhere grew. And this is what I come up with and they seemed happy. Hey, I got it too, man. 
We're all gray these days. I know. Even no, but I've got length. Yeah, that's what they all say. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrific. What are you? What are you playing? Who are you playing? I can't talk. They, I've been sworn to secrecy. I can tell what what it is, but but I'm not supposed to talk about it. All right, that's fair. You, you could say what it is, but you can't give any details. You signed a, a NDA. And all, and all the scripts have my name over them, you know, so I have to shred them all. Yep. And I don't have a, 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 a printer, so they have to send me all the way, you know, when I'm in New York, the, the things, because I, yeah, I can't take it to a copy place, you know, one of those oh, things. Oh, wow. Oh, it's that secret. Ooh. Okay. Oh, it's hush, 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 hush. It's exciting. Oh, yeah. We talked to Cheetah Rivera like uh, about a month ago, and she signed an NDA about the magic tricks in Merlin. So we had to bleep all of it out because she told us some stuff. And we, couldn't, oh. she didn't, we couldn't release any of it. <laughs> I have a nice Cheetah story. Can I tell my Cheetah story? Sure. Please do. I mean, I've, I've known about her forever, and I... I was in Joe Allen's by that time when she and Joe were having a very close friendship. But uh, when she came down, and Terrence McNally left all of his uh, stuff to a university here in Austin. So I think when he turned 80, there was some big celebration for him. And I did the thing for the John James speech from the um, Love, Valor, Compassion and and other funny things from Elizabeth Traviata. And, And Cheetah appeared. And I sort of waggled my, my butt at her backstage, which I'm prone to do sometimes. <laughs> but then was a photo call. They, they went and got me because I was out in the lobby drinking wine. They said, John, come in. You need to have your pictures. I was standing next to Cheetah. And all of a sudden, I felt this hand on my butt just squeezing away. And I turned around, and that was her. And she just squeezed my butt. It's one of my most proud moments in life. The Cheetah Rivera squeezed my butt. It was the right cheek, and I'm left-handed, <laughs> so it worked fine. It's definitely something to be proud of. And, and you had it gilded and uh, never watched it again. Not yet, not yet, but it's in my will that that's going to be gilded because it's been squeezed hard. Ooh. Handled by a cheetah. She's good, too. She's good. Oh, she's, she's, she's the best. Yeah. Let, me, let me ask you, do you remember how J-Glow came about how you became j-glow do you remember this sure the mater d that was me well you named me baby <laughs> on the set now when i'm working on the set now when i'm working i mean when we did uh, uh waiting for gado because john goodman was in it so so when he would say john and he'd say call me goody and i'd say call me j-glow and they call me J-Glow on the set that I'm working for. So I use it all the time. Yeah, because we were talking about Jennifer Lopez. And I said, you said, does she ever come in? And I said, no, but we don't need her because who needs J-Lo when we got J-Glow? Now the world has J-Glow. I just knew it was you, but I didn't know exactly how the dialogue went. But I'm glad you remember. I do. I remember it vividly. Yeah. So I want to ask you a question because... I don't know if we ever talked about this, but I'm from Towson, Maryland, originally. Oh, hon. Wonder. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. We do Maurice. Oh, nobody wants to hear. No one wants to hear that voice. Oh, I know. But I know that you went to Towson. I know that you start, that you went to Towson when it was Towson State Teachers College. Is it true? Because I read an article from a while back where it said that you did not intend to be an actor at that point in, in time when you went into the uh, Towson State Teachers College. No, I was going to be like the English teacher that does the th- plays. So so when I was a freshman there and um, and realized that I had to stand in front of a classroom of children and 
teach them stuff. It so intimidated me that I, I thought, I, can't, I don't think I can do this. But for Easter vacation, my mother's from a, a little town in southwest Virginia called Pulaski, Virginia. And it's very near uh, Bob Robert Porterfield's uh, Barter Theater, which is down in Abingdon. I've been in um, the senior class play in uh, high school. And then when I was in college, I was in Winter's Tale and the uh, Seagull. I played those things. So my mother knew that I liked plays. So she journeyed down from Pulaski, Virginia, to the uh, Abington, and she found out that they were apprentices. And you had to uh, fill out a form and an application and get some people to write a, a thing of whatever, you know, that you're a great person and terrific and work hard. So I did all that. And so my three years before, between college, I went every summer and did the 1963, 64, and 65 apprentice down at the Barter Theater. And the first uh, season I was there, I, I played Hugo in Bye Bye Birdie. <laughs> uh, and in that company was Ned Beatty and Jerry Harden and, I mean, some, you know, a bunch of New York actors. And then I played the lead in Look Homeward Angel, that kid. I mean, I, I, I mean, I couldn't believe the luck and stuff. So I went back and, and every summer, uh, did a bunch of plays and and stayed up all night painting scenery and putting down up one set and down another and so when I graduated and it was time to move to New York because then I thought oh I can be an actor because I'm acting beside these people that are in New York acting so I I I could do it so so then I knew I could be an actor. How awesome is that that your mom picked up on your love of it and traveled and like set you up. Like she set you up for success. She's your manager. Yeah, seriously. Better than some managers I've had. Yeah, because I didn't know anything about the theater or the fact that they had apprentices. And I was scared to death when I went, to, you know, because I, I was going to be with a bunch of professional people. And I but I had the time of my life. I bet. It sounds great. I don't think you've stopped working ever since then, have you? <laughs> Let's knock on the wood. <laughs> Did you then take any classes in college that were acting related, or did you just strictly do it in the summer? Well, we, we had a, a guy that named Dick Gillespie that had just come to the college the year before me. So he had acting classes, and I became, I was actually the first theater major to graduate from uh, Towson. Oh, cool. Yeah. And, and I go back sometimes. I haven't been for a while, but, and, and spend about a week or so with the students, kind of talking about what's you know, what it's like. Oh, they must love that. That must be so much fun. Well, and I did too. Yeah, I just, it kept me younger somehow. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It's it's quite, it has a great theater department, actually, to this day. It does it still? I, well, I went there almost 30 years ago for a semester, and you were, you know, you were still the, the famous graduate. Oh, I was? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, sure. And you continue to be. But, you know, when I got to New York, my, my friend Jane Cronin uh, said, Oh, there's this new theater restaurant that uh, this guy Joe Allen started, you know, because he was somewhere else and then he started. And so when I was in Midtown, because, you know, you go to equity and check out the board and stuff and you know where you can use the bathrooms and stuff when you have to go and all yes. that stuff. They're, they're disappearing <laughs> very fast. But so I'd go like to go to Joe Allen's, but you had to go downstairs. You couldn't just look in. It's like you sort of had to go down the stairs. But but I wasn't a New York actor because I did a lot of stock and regional theaters and stuff like that because that was all. But I was kind of scared to go into Joe Allen's. And then in the in the early seven, I think it was seventy two, I got 
cast with Hal Prince and Stephen Porter did the New Phoenix Repertory Theater. So, so I was working on Broadway uh, in New York. And one night uh, after rehearsal, somebody said, let's go to Joe's. And I hadn't been to Joe's before. So we, they didn't make a reservation or anything. So we had to wait for a while. Uh, for a table. And so we sat down there by the bar and we were talking about like our wildest dreams and what we wanted and everything. And some people wanted to be picked up in a limousine and some people wanted to have this and that. And I said, I'd just settle for being page to Joe Allen. <laughs> <laughs> and finally we got the, uh, the table and we sat down and we were all sitting there and we about 50, we finished ordering and we were waiting and we were drinking and, and this kind of very wonderful woman came up running down the aisles. She said, I have a page for John Glover, paging John Glover. And I thought, oh my God, well, this is amazing. And he said, the phone's right up there. And I ran up to the phone. I said, hello. And this voice said, your lifelong dream has just come true. You have been paged at Joe Allen's. It was the hat check girl. Oh, that's so cool. She had heard me say it. She found out who I was. And then I was in, man. I thought, okay, this this is great. Oh, that's terrific. So I, I got an account and I had a, an account. So when I went, I could sign my name and it looked so, I really belonged. Do you remember your number? Oh shucks, no. I was just curious. I don't. We didn't look it up, so I don't know either. But but so you so you were working on Broadway, and I know that you were in in seventy two. You did a show called The Selling of the President. That was Jack O'Brien's first Broadway directing show, and he wasn't supposed to direct it. He took over from. Oh, it was a, a show that a lot of kids were in. Uh, who's uh, I can't remember his name, but they fired and Joe and uh, and Jack took over. And and that's uh, when you know the flops. Mm -hmm. That's that was that was because uh, it never really opened. We uh, we, yeah. we, we opened before opening night, and then I remember we all went to Sardi's afterwards, and and Karen Morrow, who was in it, without a song, she had not a song. I remember in Philly once there were two guys in the front row. She came out for the for the curtain call, and one of them yelled, "You better get a song for New York, honey." <laughs> <laughs> Well, she was a singer too, wasn't she? Known for so strange. I know, but that she didn't have a song. But Pam Myers had a song, and Betty Buckley was in it. Well, she was. She came to the read through, and they they sort of sang all the songs and talked about it and everything. We broke for lunch and never saw Betty Buckley again. <laughs> so I think she called her agent and said, "Get me out of this," because <laughs> she didn't. She wasn't around. Well, yeah, the, what we found online said it was six previews and five performances. But I guess the critics had the critics come, or it was like a political satire. Yeah, yeah, sort of. They had yeah. done a very good production of it at ACT, I think, and then they Broadwayed it. It was a yeah, it was about people, you know, what they do now using the television stuff. But it was songs, and it was sort of, and it was uh, Barbara Berry and uh, um, Pat Hingle. Pat Hingle. Oh, Pat Hingle. Oh, that's a great cast. And Karen and Pam Myers. Karen without a song. Oh, I wish we had that poster. That's one no one sent us. We don't have that one. Well, sometimes, you know, I brought in the Frankenstein poster because Tom Moore said, do not take that to Joe Allen's. And I took it to Joe Allen's. <laughs> <laughs> we are fascinated by Frankenstein because they just did an article in the Times. I, so I talked to that woman. I know you did. And it sounds like it was... A feast for the eyes in, in many respects and very technically ahead of its time. Yeah. But I think, because I think they wanted us out at a certain point, they realized it wasn't going to work. 
because right after we closed, they brought in Woman of the Year with Betty Bacall. Oh. And that was a big hit. Maybe they wanted the theater. Yeah, that's what I think. But I do remember that there were three big, like, woof points when the audience sort of jumped or screamed or whatever. So there were three preview nights. And at each one of those three preview nights, somebody in the audience would do or say something uh, that would ruin the moment. And I oh. thought, because they knew the play well enough, and I just, and I kept saying to them, I think they did it on purpose. Because the, the things started happening during the previews, like they take down part of the set because the fire department came and said, oh, no, that's illegal. You can't do that. Have that grass hut and stuff like that. It was just funny stuff. There was like oddly uh, counterproductive to the show. We were all trying to exist, you know, and believe in the, the product as you do when you're in something. You, I mean, you. It's your baby. You're all part. Of, you're, you're all parents to the cousins, and you know it's this big family. Well, in the in the history of flops as a play, as a straight play, that one has a, a great pedigree, and people who saw it were blown away by the scale of it. Some people thought it was what was it called? Frankenstein live at the palace, and a lot of people would go, "Oh, Frankenstein lives at the palace." <laughs> no. Yeah, he does for a couple days. Um, after I said I would do it, Mike Nichols came and saw a production up in William. I was in Williamstown the summer before, at which Frank Langella said, I was telling him what I was going to do. And he said, did you have a song? <laughs> I said, no, no, it's not a musical. He went, oh, okay. All right. But, but Mike Nichols came to see this production of Cherry Orchard. And I played uh, the guy that loves Dunyasha. But anyway, but Mike Nichols came over and, and at the party after and, and said something to me and stuff, which I thought was very exciting. And then I was at a gym that wasn't quite finished and I got a page at the gym. And I said, you have a phone call. And I went and said, hello. And this time he said, hi, John, Mike Nichols. Uh, yeah, I'm doing a play. And I'm, uh, there's a part, I think I'm going to replace a guy. Would you? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went and I read it. It was a little part. And I thought, hmm. And I, and I called him and I said, um, told Tom Moore I was going to do this play, so I, I'm going to say no. He said, oh, come on now. You're going to, this uh, this new job you're going to take, it's going to run for a night. You're going to get laryngitis. I got laryngitis. It ran for a night. <laughs> <laughs> what was the play, the, the Mike Nichols play? Uh, lunch Hour. It was Sam Waterston and uh, Gilda Radner. Oh. And there was a, a time in the in the play when I went to give her flowers and they sort of all started falling out of my hand that I'd picked. So I, I, I picked them all up and sort of handed them to her that were upside down and all around. And in lunch hour, there was a thing that Gilda Radner did with the coffee maker that it all sort of fell down the same way the flowers did. And then she put it together. And I thought, he stole that from me. And Mike Nichols stole that from me. <laughs> he got something out of the deal. Hey, that's something to say. Mike Nichols stole something from you. Man, that's a compliment. And, and then I got to work with him in uh, Death of a Salesman. <laughs> We've heard of that. Now, the production with, with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Mike said, Mike said uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, makes Meryl Streep look like she's just good with makeup. <laughs> wow. And I know he didn't mean it ugly or anything because he loves Meryl Streep. I mean, he's done work with her, but he's a funny man. So, so he said things that were funny. I, I sat next to him at rehearsals all the time and knitted because I knit scarves. So, so I played Uncle Ben. 
So I didn't, I didn't, so I just sit next to him and, and knit. I just wanted to be as close to him as possible. And he wrote me the greatest note when they came to see uh, Much Ado About Nothing in the Park. Uh, yeah. He was, oh God, he was great. Speaking of not having a song and knitting, you did Drowsy <laughs> Chaperone. Great job, Jason. Right? There you go. Ooh. Right. Well, that was like, because I wanted to be in musicals for years, but I sing off key. So he only sings once right at the end, where let's travel along on life's lonely highway. But when I go to sing that, I could hear the woman down under the thing trying to do this for my kid. Here's your key. It's this. It would just go play. I can never. <laughs> well, I, every now and then I got it. But most of the time she was down there plunking my key, which I couldn't find. <laughs> that must have been a really fun show. Yes. Yeah. If you like musicals, if you like stage, if you like straight plays, it's just a big love letter to the theater. It was during hiatus from Smallville. My agent called and I said, is it an offer? And they said, no, you have to come in and audition. So I hadn't seen The Drowsy Chaperone. The day I flew in, I, I landed after it was over. So I had never seen it. So when I came in to audition, I I was like a fresh whatever. Because I, I did that, that first speech. And then when I finished the audition, I went to Joe's to have some soup. And I, by the time the soup came, I was sitting at the end of the bar. My phone rang and, uh, and it was my agent. And he said, they've offered you the role. You got the part. <laughs> and then they were doing it in London. So Bob went to London and, and Casey, who directed it, went to London. So when I was rehearsing it, I had all those, I had the stage manager and the dance captain and the, and his assistant. And so, and then I started playing and I was having the time of my life because it was about this passionate man who loves the theater so much. And, and Casey came back and he came to the dressing room and he said, okay, I directed a play about a musical and I saw tonight a play about a man. Oh. And then he said, I want my play back. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, okay, but how? And I don't think I could ever, I don't, I don't know, but I just, I mean, I guess he, I mean, he knew what he was doing and he. Well, did that result in you kind of altering, having the same intent, but just sort of changing the, the level at which you were doing it or what, I mean, what did it, what did that. Change? I tried, he gave me some notes and I tried, but the last performance, I heard him laugh once out in the audience and he never came back to say goodbye. <laughs> so I don't think I, I don't know. But he's a great director. That 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 uh, thing that he did of the Follies, remember, with uh, Christine Baranski, and did you see that at City Center? Mm -hmm. I mean, that was yeah. one of the best Follies I'd ever seen because I used to get into Follies for free the summer after it opened. Well, because Hal Prince was directing The Great God Brown that he gave me the lead in. Mm -hmm. I, I think it was because of House of Blue Leaves because Judy Prince, his wife, was real close to John Guare. And I had a big success when I replaced um, the guy that used to get them mixed up with me, uh, Bill Atherton, who was do doing the uh, Ronnie. Uh, but anyway, so so in The Great God Brown, John McMartin was playing the part where he dies and I take over uh, his his uh, his life with a mask. This is Eugene O'Neill play, really weird and wonderful. But Hal said to me, "Listen, John McMartin has a very distinct range, you know, vo vocal." thing you can you know you hear it so the uh howard haynes is the house manager i'll alert him 
and whenever you want, just go and he'll get you a seat and, and you do. So I saw Follies for free about 20 times that summer. No, wait a minute. But wasn't John, John McMartin was in Follies, wasn't he? Or had he left it? Yes, that's why he wanted me to go see John McMartin so I could mimic his voice. Ah, so gotcha. Get it in okay. line. So so it was research. But but I got to see, see Follies so all those times. Yeah. I can only imagine. Wow. And I tried not to bring everybody, but I did bring Jane Cronin one night. And the house manager really looked at me like, John, you're not supposed to bring your friends now. I'll do it this once, but no, only this once. You like bringing a group to come see Falling Thing? That's research. Yeah, no, yeah. So that's a that was a, an amazing time to be working on Broadway in the early '70s to to kind of make that your entry point. All of people, these people were working at such a high level. Just it must have been great. Yep, it sure was. Now earlier you mentioned that in Summerstock you played Hugo in Bye Bye Birdie. So I have to ask you then when you did 52 pickup, like we're moving to the movie. Here. We did 52 pickup. We pick just up. 52 pickup. We just watched it the other night and we were all like, you're terrible. Oh, thank you. I mean, thank wonderfully you. terrible. Thank you. But, but like. Hon, I have touched Anne Margaret everywhere there is to touch. I know. <laughs> like we were sitting, we all were texting each other going, he's throwing Anne Margaret around, shooting her up with. Smack, what is happening? Yeah. Shooting topless Kelly Preston. This is a really awful scene. I love it. It's amazing. Oh, I know. She wasn't Mrs. John Travolta yet. That character is the scummiest, awfulest. He is. Really fun to watch. That was really fun. Well, thank you. But we just all were like, what that must have, was that a create, I mean, the movie, the character is, like we said, you're wonderfully terrifying. But like, Going into a movie with someone like Anne Margaret and having to do those kinds of scenes, was that like a shock to the system or were Well the the thing of it was that she she we had a reading and, and she said, Look, John, I'm not a trained actor. So and you remind me so much of one of the guys that's is my dancers and I love him so much. So whenever we're together, could you sort of stay in character? Ooh. Wow. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, I don't want to stay in character if I'm around you. I don't want to be that man. So the first time we shot something, it was going to be a, like a phone call. And she, was, she came into the room, and I thought, okay, I'm going to try and be in character now. All right, okay. And I, I just like, I wanted to remind you this. I mean, I put her in the trunk of my car, shoot her full of heron and everything. And so she walks in, and I'm I was like, okay, you know, trying to be cool like that. She said, have you shot anything yet? And I said, no, 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 I'm just waiting for you and get the thing right. You know, thinking that she meant you were shot up yet. She said, no, I mean, have you shot any of the film yet? (laughs) There I was doubly a fool. (laughs) So it just, but it made me so sad because I just, I just wanted to. You know, sit around and talk with Anne Margaret, but I was this terrible person to her. When I was a kid, that was on Showtime, and my, my father watched it, and he's like, you can never watch that movie. Oh, amazing. And so, like, on Sunday, I finally watched it after 35 years of not being able to watch it, and I get what he was talking about. I mean, I was taken aback at my age now, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. It has, like, a death wish. It's a really grimy, gritty kind of vibe to that movie, and you provide a little humor in how awful your character is but um yeah it was it was really something to see i had the best time you know i i, I called home my dad my dad reads uh, murder mysteries histories and westerns 
So I called home and I said, Dad, I, I, I got a movie. I'm going to be in this movie. And, and he said, what is it? I said, it's a, a 52 pickup. He said, oh, Elmore Leonard. Oh, that's a good one. So then I knew I went and got the book because Elmore Leonard writes great, great dialogue. So sometimes the dialogue was a little hemmed down and stuff. So I'd go to the book and I'd talk to John Frankenheimer and he'd say, oh, yeah, that is better. <laughs> Because I mean, he's a brilliant dialogist. That moment. must be. I mean, also Frankenheimer was such a, a, a I would imagine, an intimidating director because he just had such, you know, between Manchurian Candidate and he was such a seasoned filmmaker. Well, he be, he believed in me. The the scene that we uh, where we uh, where, when I shot Kelly Preston through the through the thing and stuff. The 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 dialogue that went with when I was talking to Roy Scheider when when I. When I show him, I show him the film, right? Brutal. But the dialogue there wasn't very good. So John, I remember John Frankenheimer and me sitting in my trailer and we sort of rewrote it that morning, the two of us together. I mean, it was a true collaboration. I mean, oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, did you know that there's a shot of Joe Allen in London, in uh, LA in that movie? Yeah. They come out and he talks about chicken wings. We didn't know that when we saw it. And we were like, how cool is that? Did you squeal with delight? We did. Ah, there we are. I want to build the records of that LA sign. I don't know of any other movies that that was ever in. Because the New York Joe Allen has been in a few films, but that's the only one I know of LA being in. Uh, Speaking about those uh, collaborations, you did a production of Waiting for Godot. Am I saying that right? Godot? Godot. 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 Gatto, but you had quite quite a big cast there. Some very important people. I'll say. Yeah, I mean, if that must have been a collaborator's dream. I tried to uh, to not do it. Oh, really? Why? Because I did uh, at the Barter Theater my last year. I can't remember which one I played, but I did a production of it in the, in their small theater. So I go to see the production whenever it's done. And it's usually so boring and so tedious. And the lucky thing I have never understood, never in my life. So I I remember I got the phone call. I had been in New York a lot. I was standing next to Adam, my my now husband. We uh, we weren't married yet then. And my agent called and said, you've been offered the lucky uh, because uh, who was going to play it, had had a foot surgery and can't do it. David Strathairn. He was supposed to do it. And he said, uh, so they were offering it to you. And Anthony Page is directing it, who I'd worked with years ago in a Lear at Stratford, uh, Connecticut. And I said, you know, I'd just gotten home. I've been apart from Adam so long. And I, I'm just going to have to pass on this. I just, and I, and I don't understand that part anyway. So I'm, I'm sorry. And I haven't been with, I want to just stay at home and be with him. And he said, okay. And Adam looked at me and he said, okay, first off, I resent you using me as an excuse why you're not going to do that part. And I think you're a fool if you turn that down. And the phone rang and it was Gary, my agent, calling me back. And he said, John, I think you're a fool if you don't do this part. Were they in cahoots? You're like, somebody agrees with you. So I said, okay, I'll do it. And then uh, Nathan called and said, well, congratulations. And you know, and, and, and the agent had said, but they want you to learn the part before we start rehearsals. I said, oh God, Nathan, I don't know if I can learn that or not. And he said, well, John, with that part, nobody's going to know the difference if you know it or not. (laughs) But then Anthony called. He took the script 
and he divided it into three movements, like a piece of music. He said, this is that, and then it goes down to there, and then it goes there. So in learning it, I, uh, it was really hard, but I did it. I worked on it every day. And it was, I was, I mean, I got nominated and, and everything. And the guys other weren't, weren't, which I did not understand. But when John Guare came back, he said to me, it was the, one of the best compliments I've ever gotten. I think I finally know what Lucky's trying to talk about. He said, I think I got it. It made sense to uh, me. Yeah, because you have that torrent, that kind of tortured torrent monologue that is like. It, I mean, it was just great because I thought, oh, okay. I had a real challenge that I tried to get out of, and I climbed the ladder and made it. For something like that, do you have a process that you go to when it's something that you find difficult to learn right off the bat? Uh-uh. I don't know. I'm just pain. It was just, and then now, at this age now, oh, it's so hard for me to learn lines. There was a play called at the public theater called Subject of Fits about, the, the, it was based on the idiot, the Dostoevsky thing. The lead was leaving. So I, I went in and, and I, I read something. I think I read something. And, and they said, well, okay, you're going to replace him and you can rehearse next week and then go in the week after. And I said, well, I can learn it over the weekend. Wow. And I did. Wow. I went, I went, for, I guess Friday night or Saturday. I started, I went page by page through it. I never went over it again. I went in Tuesday for the sort of rehearsal or maybe it was Monday. And did it. I never looked at the text again, and I had learned it. I, I I amazed myself. I thought, what am I doing? Telling them I can learn it over the weekend? What is it? <laughs> but I did. I I can't do that anymore. I was going to say that must have helped when you were doing you know episodic TV. But I'm doing episodic TV now, and those skills are not there. No. I I said to them, if you if I mean I can't I can't learn lines like I used to. So. You send me the script as soon as possible. I mean, I, I said at least four weeks, but that's why I think the theater's best because you get your four weeks and then, you, you know, it's that repetition, repetition, repetition. But film stuff, it's like, yikes, because it goes too. It like disappears. Like we, we were shooting something. He said, we're going to do one, a three, two, one. And I, and I went copy and, and the director said, Oh, that's good. Put that copy in. And then he went three, two, one. And I went, <laughs> I, say, I, I couldn't remember what the word was i could not remember copy i mean i just i go blank I, my nickname now is fuzzbrain that's <laughs> what it feels it's all fuzzy in here and i used to joke i said oh names and knees you know they're the first to go now mine are gone my knees are okay but the name part is so and, and, and i'm sure it's not as bad as you're saying it is but uh, well, i wouldn't lay money on that so i I, I just feel like we have to mention Love, Valor, Compassion, because it was such a, a moving piece. It changed people's lives, yeah. As much as we know you as charming Jay Glow and how much we enjoy your company, there's a way in which you've played a lot of not kind people. And in that play, you know, there's so much warmth and, and humanity in each of those characters and their, and their journeys with each other. What, how did that start off? Terrence had done a, a, a they were going to do a, a, it's only a play at, at the music center. And they, they did a reading of it. And he, and he asked me to, to read the playwright that David Hyde Pierce, I think, ended up playing it when it was out in LA. He was a wonderful actor because I was doing a Richard II that I ended up not doing. But Terrence wrote me a card and uh, a card saying, you know, he would like to work with me sometime, da, 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 da. And I had his phone number on it. And then I went to New York. I was living in L.A. then. I went to New York, and I saw Lips Together, Teeth Apart. And I, John Dolph, who I was with, had died. And I was very moved by it. 
and I knew that they did his plays at the Taper, and he and I lived in L.A. So when I got home to L.A., I went through all my piles of papers because I live in stacks and piles, uh, and found the thing. And I called him up and I said, "Please, if you do the play in L.A., can I play the part of John? That part?" And uh, and they did it in L.A. And they offered me the part of John. And so at the Taper, it was the part that Tony Heal played in New York. And then we did the we started Tex, and Terrence was back. And we were about ready to go into previews, and he'd seen a lot of the rehearsals and stuff. And I was in my dressing room, and the men's room was right across. Either I was coming out or he was going in or vice versa. And he said, this new play I'm working on, I've started hearing your voice. Hmm. And that turned out to be Love, Valor, Compassion. Oh, wow. So it happened with the phone call because I called him and told him I wanted to work with him and play one of his parts. Yeah, that must be music to your ears when you hear Terrence McNally say, I'm hearing your voice while I'm writing. It was amazing. Yeah. And then what the part was, what I figured out was James, who was the, the mean one, they say, is terrified that he won't be accepted, you know, or, or loved. So what he does is closes off and behaves like a stupid asshole all the time. And then John, who's just full of love and doesn't, I mean, just wants to give love out. So, but that monologue where he's talking to his twins, I mean, just beautiful. But the whole play is just beautiful and funny. Somebody was, went to buy tickets and said, I, I was, I could, I could, you was just like one laugh after another, after another, after another. I mean, it's, it's Terrence's beauty. I mean, he writes to the heart and the soul and then he's funny about it. So I've got, I got to do a lot of his plays. Here's one. He called me up and said, would you play, uh, in the Lisbon Traviata, the part that Nathan did? So I went down, I'd never seen it, but I went down to the, the Barnes and Noble on Union Square and got a copy of it and saw that the guy has to sing some opera. He has to do Italian. Uh, Nathan Lane did it before. It was his huge, big success. And I didn't call him back for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I got a call from him. He said, John. I am so insulted. I called you at home to ask you to do this part, and I haven't heard from you. And so I, I fessed up, and I said, well, I don't know Italian. I don't, I don't know anything about the opera. And Nathan had a big success with it. I mean, what? Well, come on. There was this long pause, and he said, well, isn't it the things you're afraid of most, the things you're supposed to do? <laughs> and I said, okay, I'll do it. Okay. It's like another one of those things, I dare you. I dare you. <laughs> but I was doing the uh, royal family during. And so uh, one of the understudy for the young ingenue had majored in Italian when she uh, was in college. So she helped me learn the Italian. And, and somebody else, I don't know. But I found all around me was this world of life that was helping me do it. It's, I mean, it's, and it's everywhere. I mean, that spiritual thing where, you know, you know get in tune with the, with the, with the world. It, I mean, it's it's there. That's beautiful. It's like you're being held in a difficult moment by the support of the people around you. Community, community. If only we could get the people in the Congress to do that. Same thing. Wouldn't that be splendid? It's sheer bald face terror and self-preservation. That's all it is. On the Instagram, this one guy said to me, you, look, you should stop being a celebrity and just leave the politics to the people who know. I said, wait a minute. First off, I am not a celebrity. I mean, if anything, it's a demi-celeb. But... I am most a citizen of the United States, and I'm paying attention to who's representing us. So don't tell me not to pay attention I've to I've never that. seen a bunch of people do a job so badly for so long, and they just keep doing it. It's like, what the hell is going on? But you are a celebrity, and 
we were we were talking about the movie going back and watching Fifty Two Pickup. We watched Gremlins Two, which I always love. It's a social satire and a cartoon. Yeah, it's like a cartoon and a parody of sequels. I had a real good time. And you play a, a real estate developer named Daniel Clamp. It's it's a combination of Donald Trump and uh, Ted Turner. Mm-hmm. And I keep ca- I keep calling Joe Dante, and I say, "What? Let's do him now and make Daniel Clamp president." That could oh, be really that's fun. That's a great idea. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Joe Dante. What, what's he, what was that experience like? There's one scene where I, I play with the toys and everything. I don't know if you remember, but there were toys from Joe's office desk. So I said, Joe, Joe, would you go get all those little toys so I can put them on my desk on the set? So he did. He brought them all in and I was playing wind up. I mean, you jamming the gremlin in the shredders. Oh, oh, that's my favorite scene. What was it like to shoot that? Like It was great. You had this puppet strapped to you and you're... Oh, the puppeteers in that were amazing. It was it was about seven or eight people that would because some worked the eyebrows, some worked the eyes. The, I mean, and they would stay and play with me. And then they had a break too. So, so they'd stop. And the animals would just sort of die. You had mentioned earlier to me, we spoke on the phone. Um, you, you say you're not a singer, but you did this bit for Broadway Backwards where you, you you broke your own rules and you sang a little bit and you sounded absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Uh, I wouldn't let Adam come to see it because he, he, he's really musical. Anytime he can sing a song and be right on key and everything. So I wouldn't let him come to see it. But he went up and looked at it. I said, well, they, it's online now, so you could look at it. He said, yeah, well, you're only off key a couple of times. It's all right. I made it a little play, like a scene, because I couldn't, I had to figure out how to act it. So if you're walking down the street sometime and spot some hollow ancient eyes, Please don't just pass by and stare As if you didn't care Say hello in there Hello it, it, It's so simple Hello How's your day going? <laughs> Rudy Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like I had, I did this play called uh, Michael Tucker wrote it. I played a, a an artist, uh, Fern Hill, and I had to sing a song. And w- we had done it down at New Jersey Rep in um, Long Branch, New Jersey. That couple that run that wonderful theater. It was it was hard to, to sing for me because they talked about it. So I said, Michael, can I rewrite? Just kind of get in there somewhere that the guy sings all the time, but he's a terrible singer. So <laughs> so it didn't matter. So I thought, now that it's there, I can just sing and be free. Because if something comes out wrong, it's already been set up. So apparently, it was one of the highlights of the play. And very moving. Because it didn't matter that I was singing the, the other thing. And then I sang Somewhere Over the Rainbow in, in Terrence's play in Philadelphia, the, uh, Some Men. The drag queen, I played the bunny. Oh, oh, I had, I had such fun being a drag queen. Uh, Jane Greenwood did things. They got me real, uh, real breasts that kind of bounce. <laughs> there have been huge advances in that field. And I sang free because it, 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 but it got a hand because it didn't matter because he was this drag queen who discovered himself. That's amazing. I had a guy from Wicked teach me how to make up and everything. I had the best time. 
and Adam could not wait for that part to be over. <laughs> it was, I was having too much fun. Time to drop character now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to say that in addition to all the stage work, in addition to the film, you have, and Kevin Skinner, our wonderful friend and manager at Joe Allen, who is the world's biggest fan of Superman and Batman, uh, wanted us to say and to mention, and we wanted to mention as well, your connection to DC, because it goes back now. 25 years you were in the infamous batman and robin um you also did the voice of uh, the riddler for batman the animated series you have your uh, i'm sure lionel luthor must be one of your favorite parts to ever played and you played the father of dr savannah in shazam and you know all of these roles though came to me they i did not audition they were just offers, and I don't, I don't know why. Were you a comic book fan? No, you know, I read the Archie ones. So was it a little alien to you? The D, the whole DC world was not something you were so familiar with. But it was kind of freeing because I didn't have any, you know. I mean, Lionel Luther was. I, I think there was one picture in one frame uh, somewhere in a in a Superman book about him. But but there were I could create him, and all I kept thinking of was I'm pouring more love on Lex because he's not strong. That's why I gave him the shock treatment to strengthen him. This I got this several times on the street from people would stop. They'd say, "Wait, wait a minute! You're Lionel Luther. Are you supposed? Are you a good guy or a bad guy? I can't figure that out." It's confused perspective. It's interesting to see. Yeah, and there you go. That's what I yearn for and long for. But I I just want to say that I used to I used to always want seven because it's special. But now I go for back by the kitchen. That's where I like. Uh, okay, hold that thought because we have, just like they do on Inside the Actor's Studio, we have a last call that we do, which is a Proust questionnaire with eight questions, and some of them are Joe Allen specific. So we'll do that, and you can tell us all of your preferences for the restaurant when we do our Proust questionnaire, which Dana can do now. I didn't do any homework. Yeah. No sweat, very fun, breezy. What's your favorite drink at Joe Allen? A red wine, house red. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I'm doing just what I want to do. You're doing exactly what you want to do. That's a perfect answer. Okay, bar side or main dining room side? It seems like it's both. Right by the kitchen. The one the one under the, uh, what's that poster? That is? Dude. Yeah, dude. The dude table. Dude. Yeah. Dude. That's my fave. Yeah. Are you pre-theater or post-theater? Both, if possible. Is there any dream role that you have yet to tackle? The guy in the Tempest. Prospero. Although you did play the brother in that Western version of The Tempest. Oh, with Peter Fonda. Right? <laughs> yes. You've got the, uh, I think you've got the wizard beard now. So you could just step into that role. So better start learning it. Okay. Who's listening out there? Who's listening? <laughs> Any day now. Jack, I would like to do it with Jack O'Brien. Whoops. Later. Remind me. Was that Jack O'Brien paging you? <laughs> He's going to do The Tempest. I don't know what it was. I think it was about money, actually. Oh. <laughs> well, no, any more? No, just, just a few more. What's your favorite dish at Joe Allen, either past or present? I like the liver. Classic. Do you get the bacon and onions? No, I like the gravy and the mashed potatoes and the spinach, but I don't always finish my spinach. What is your favorite curse word? Oh, shucks. <laughs> you use that a lot. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah. And finally, just pick one word to describe how you feel about Joe Allen, the establishment. Comfortable. Comfortable. Wonderful. Great. And safe. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for uh, talking to us, Jay Glow. We had a wonderful time. Me too. We like to do a little toast at the end of our show. So if you'd raise a glass, there you go. 
to good friends, great nights at the theater, and cocktails at table seven. <laughs> Cheers, my friend. We're here. We're here. Jago, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Cocktails at Table 7 is produced by Jason Woodruff, Dana Mirlock, and Sean Kent, with theme music by James Rubio and logo design and artwork by Christina D'Angelo. Special thanks to the owners of Joe Allen, Orso, and Bar Centrale Restaurants. Get it right. Get it right. We just have to make sure we get it right.